It's really nice to be back here with you guys this morning. Last week, I had the privilege of going down to South Penn in the Deep South and uh, speaking there, and it was so lovely. It's the first time uh, I got to uh, give a message at their Africa house, which is just really cozy. And it brought back some wonderful memories going into that, that Fishuk Valley because Tracy and I, about 15 years ago, we moved into the Fishuk Valley by mistake. Um, okay, maybe mistake. Okay, well, let me rephrase that. We moved to the Fishuk Valley because we didn't have a choice. Not that if we'd had a choice, we wouldn't have moved to the Fishuk. I'm going to explain myself. Uh, so what happened about 15, you know, you get married and uh, you, you do all these plans as you, you plan to get married. And then once you are married, you plan to have a kid. And, and when you're going to have a kid, you make all these plans about how life is going to be for when the kid arrives. And uh, so, you know, I decided that my plan would be, I would be by that point a successful film director with back-to-back -back big Hollywood movies racked and stacked. And Tracy would be successful in her career and very happy. And by the time we had a kid, we would be debt-free and we would be living this uh, stress-free existence. And uh, we would have plenty of time on our hands to raise this perfect child in the most harmonious environment that I could possibly plan to make. And then there's what happened. When we fell pregnant, <laughs> uh, the film company I'd started with a bunch of mates went belly up due to a client who left without paying his overages, and we all had to go our separate ways, and uh, uh, it was a pretty devastating time. We lost everything. Uh, so we had to give up the house we were renting, and my mother-in-law, who lives in the Fishwick Valley in Piers Hill, very kindly let us stay with her rent-free till I could get back on my feet. And we ended up staying there for two years. My credit cards were maxed. Um, I was even starting to sell my pride and joy, my DVD collection that I'd collected over many, many years just to buy electricity and food. And uh, it was in that insecure world that my son was born. <laughs> oh, the plans we can make and then what actually happens. Which brings me to James chapter 4, verses uh, 13 to 17. We're uh, in the message six of the subsection, True Wisdom, and my heading for today is True Wisdom Plans Faithfully Without the Illusion of Control. True Wisdom Plans Faithfully Without the Illusion of Control. We've been really putting a microscope on the book of James, just going through it verse by verse, just drawing all we can from all of James's very practical wisdom. It's a very practical book, and, and I absolutely love it. And, and the more I think about it, the more I'm convinced I want to make a movie on the life of James. Um, but I, I think about James, and where did he get all this very practical wisdom from? Where did he get all this very hands-on wisdom from? And if you think about it, James was the half-brother of Christ, right? So all the other disciples, they got three years with Jesus. But James was his little brother. And if you think about how little brothers look up to their big brothers, and you think about it, okay, so James initially, we know for a fact, didn't see Jesus as the son of God who would one day save him from all his naughtiness. But when that penny dropped, when that dawning came and James saw Jesus for who he was, God incarnate, I bet James was like, I oh, know that makes sense. Now I remember when I was a kid and Jesus did that instead of that and Jesus said that instead of that and Jesus went with mom and dad to the temple and he came back and Jesus explained to mom and dad this, that and the next thing. Now that makes sense. So while the other disciples got three years, James got maybe two decades of Jesus' teaching, his example, his wisdom, 
to tap into to write this amazing practical letter. I write my message today tapping into uh, Luke's notes, a fantastic Tim Keller sermon, Michael Eaton, some Douglas Moo, and some of the commentaries. Let's have a look at it. We are looking at James chapter 4, verse 13 to 17. Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business, and make money. Why, you don't even not know what tomorrow will what'll happen tomorrow. What is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast and brag, all such boasting is evil. Anyone then who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. What is James talking about? Is James, is James saying, Derek, you twit. Why were you planning all that stuff for when your kid was born? Is James anti-planning? Is James anti-planning or is this what he's trying to say? Or what he is saying, not trying to say. Christians should plan their lives in such a way as to reflect their faith in a sovereign Lord and a desire to live for his kingdom. Let's take a look. Let's find out. Is James anti-planning? Let's give this passage some context. James is tackling a worldview that was prevalent at the time amongst some wealthy merchants of the day. It seems the abundance of wealth in their lives had uh, allowed them a kind of independence from God, an autonomy from Him. It turns out that their wealth had been dangerous to their spiritual state, and that it had blinded them to some crucial realities. So James is using them as an example to the church. But James wasn't only talking to wealthy merchants here, was he? His general letter was for the church scattered all over the place. It was for them 2,000 years ago, and it's for us right now. James was talking to the broader audience that includes Christ followers that want to be wealthy, Christ follows, or actually anybody with goals and ambitions, anybody with a to-do list. James was talking to everybody. Is James just talking about money? No, uh, no, he's not just talking about money. Many times before this and after this, in the book of James, James will address wealth and business, but that's not the overriding theme of this passage. So it, it's much more than that. Let's, it's worth clarifying what the problem is not. Let's clarify what the problem is not. It's not that the receivers of the letter are in a secular vocation. James isn't calling everybody to full-time ministry here. It's not that, that they were trying to make a profit. James isn't making a statement on capitalism here. James is not even taking exception to the act of planning for the future in and of itself. And James is certainly not condemning the wise stewardship of time and wealth, like taking out insurance, investing, and saving for your retirement. Instead of uh, talking about money, James could have said, hey, you guys who say next year I'm going to study this thing, and then I'm going to go to that university, I'm going to have that career. Or he could have said uh, to you guys, hey, you guys who say next year we're going to have a baby, we're going to have five children in, in, our, in our family, we're going to plan this, and this is where we're going to live. No, James, instead of mentioning that, he could have he um, said all sorts of things that we plan. In other words, he's not talking about money or travel or family or business He's talking about one of the most normal things we do. We try and exert some control over our circumstances. We plan. 
tomorrow I'm going to do this and that. This year I will. In five years I, I will be, I will have, I will have achieved. It's absolutely natural and normal to try and get some control over the circumstances of your life by planning, by setting goals, by setting up a schedule. Now listen, you who say today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Today or tomorrow we'll go to that city. We, we, we plan our movements. We place. We'll spend a year there. Time, we plan our time. And do business and make money. We have goals. Setting goals is something we do all the time. Some of us very formally, some of us very strategically for our businesses, for our jobs, but all of us do it. Now, is James saying, listen, you shouldn't do that. If, if you want to be a Christ follower, you don't say today or tomorrow, I'm going to plan on doing that. We don't do that as Christ followers. If only it was that easy. Let's look closer at the two verses on planning, verse 13 and verse 15. Now, listen, you who say today or tomorrow, we will go to this or that city. We will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business, make money. Instead, verse 15, instead, you ought to say something, something. We will something, something, do this or that. So he's saying we will do these things. We will plan in both verses. We will go down there. But James is saying there's a fundamental difference between the way we do it and the way we should do it. James exposes a problem within the thinking of these believers, and he constantly uses the word will, re revealing the certainty of their thinking. We will do this or that. They've got it all worked out. They're going to travel, and they're going to make a profit just like they planned to. They'd given little or no thought to what God thought of their plans. They were planning their lives apart from God. James tells us that the normal way we go about making our plans for a day, for a week, for a month, for a year, or a life is fundamentally evil and wicked and boastful. At the end of this section, you get to verse 17, and he says this, anyone, if anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. He uses harsh words in this passage, like evil and sins, stuff we, we don't like to talk about much. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it since, when you first look at that verse, you think this isn't connected really to the rest of that paragraph. Like maybe he's laying down some new principle here. If this is how we read it and we read it quickly, if anyone knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. But then you notice the word then in that verse. Then ties the verse to the previous verses. It's not a standalone verse. It's completely relevant to your planning. We tend to think, this is why, we tend to think of the sins, of sins as the things we do. Not so much the things we should do, but fail to do. These merchants in Jesus' time had made profit the goal and not the kingdom of God. And in doing so, committed the sin of omission. I'm going to go much deeper into the sin of omission just now. The opposite of this kind of planning, of this uh, planning, tries to plan according to the will of God and the works and works to accomplish His will in the world rather than merely generating profit. The kinds of things that James draws us, our attention to before and throughout the rest of the letter is we can't incorporate into our business dealings. Here's some, a list that Christopher Church gives us. Number one, caring for the marginalized and the oppressed. Number two, avoiding discriminatory practices. Number three, showing mercy on others. Put those into your business model 
plan around those. In contrast, these traders seem to focus exclusively on profits. We do well to remember Jesus' words in Luke 12. From everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. Have you been given much? Practically, let's deal with financial planning. Um, Christ follows, having planned and in the implementing of those plans, we must seek to do good works with our profits. But I want you to understand that profits are not only financial gain. Profits are not only financial gain. Profits are things like a privileged position, an education, experience, gained talents, and time. Barton Bierman Wilson, who wrote the Life Application Bible Commentary on James, they suggest five practices to avoid. Number one, avoid envisaging retirement as a time to simply enjoy the fruit of one's labor. I belong to an old gym in Claremont, and I say an old gym because it's been there forever. I think it was there before Cape Town was found. Um, and a lot of the people who go to that gym have also been there forever. <laughs> so you, you probably know which one I'm talking about. And I was there one morning after gym. I'd, I'd gotten to gym with a lot of these older guys, and, and they're just so sweet, and, and I got to know quite a few of them. And one morning I was having my breakfast. The, the little, um, there's a little restaurant next to the pool, and as you come down the stairs from the gym to leave the area, the one morning I was sitting there eating my egg sandwich or whatever it was, and this guy came out the gym, and he walked to the door, elderly gentleman, lovely guy, walked to the door, and he kind of stood there, and he hovered. And then he kind of turned around, and then he kind of stood there and hovered. And then he kind of walked out. And I thought to myself, it's 7 in the morning, and that guy's got nothing else to do with his day. He's got nothing to do with his day. But I know him. He's extraordinary. What he's achieved in business his ability, his education, his brain, his mind, his talents, his gifts. He's got so much he could do with his day in reinvesting into other lives. And, and yet he had decided that his retirement was simply a time to enjoy the fruit of his labor. He wasn't enjoying it. Number two, avoid seeing work merely as the means to make money and buy what we want. Avoid viewing material prosperity prosperity as a symbol of our independence from God, like these merchants had. Avoid imagining God as aloof from our money matters. And avoid making our decisions without considering Christ. It's arrogant. It's arrogant. Verse 16, as it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. The clear problem that James is correcting is the arrogance and lack of thought for God's will and the illusion of personal control. It's evil. This kind of mentality James is taking on here is the arrogance we carry in thinking we can engineer our future, planning as if we are in control. They've made their own plans. They know what they're going to do, and they know things are going to work out. I suppose they've got no room for God. They've got it covered on their own. 
This kind of exclusion of God, this self-reliance, even in the marketplace realms of our lives, is simply arrogant. Confidence in our own effectiveness is prideful, and it leads to greater levels of pride. This, uh, this boasting in this context, it's got an older meaning than just simply bragging. And that's why in other verses in the Bible, it says we can boast in, in um, our weakness or we can boast in Christ's death. It's, it's rather than boasting, it's putting your confidence in. We can put our confidence in Christ's death. James is saying here, don't boast. Don't put your confidence in your own abilities. James is bursting the illusion of control. Verse 14. Why, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. James makes an assertion. Why, you don't even know what will happen tomorrow. Followed by a question. What is your life? So he reminds them of who they truly are. A mist. Matthew, he points out that the words chosen by James draw our attention to our ignorance, our frailty, and our dependence on God. The believers simply do not know what the future holds, not even tomorrow, not even tomorrow. They're the creatures, not the creator. The word mist can be translated as vapor or smoke, but the meaning is clear. One minute here and gone the next. It's here now. And quickly disappearing. Human life is transitory. It's, it's temporary. Illness, accidents, all out of the blue remind us of this thing. Steve Jobs, when, uh, when he died of cancer, he was uh, one of the most influential, successful, wealthy individuals out there. I mean, not only after the Apple Mac, but then the iPhone came and, and just all, but all of his money, all of his achievements, all of his education... All of his success, it couldn't buy him one more year, not one more month, not one more day. It could not save him. Life changes like a wind that moves a cloud of smoke or a morning sun that evaporates the fog. In Proverbs, and the, Proverbs reminds us this in Proverbs 27 verse 1. Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring. And the psalmist, he says this, you have made my days a mere handbreadth. The span of my years is nothing before you. Everyone is but a breath, even those who seem secure. Even those who seem secure. Surely everyone goes around like a mere phantom. In vain they rush about, heaping up wealth without knowing whose it'll finally be. Jesus tells us the parable of the rich fool in Luke 12, 13 to 20. Don't be foolish. Don't be foolish. How many of us? How many of us had big plans for 2020? <laughs> or how many of you actually said to yourself, well, you know what, in 2020, I'd really like to spend five months at home. And when I'm not at home, I'm going to go to pick and pay to buy my crop bottom pants and my rotisserie ch chicken, uh, uh, terrified that somebody's going to breathe on me, scared to touch anything, terrified to sneeze in public. How many of you felt you were in control over the last three years? Not me, I certainly didn't. Uh, not at all. For some, it was the fear of death, hospitalization, sickness. For others, for many of us, it was job loss, financial insecurity. For others, it was desperate loneliness, frustration, disappointment, disillusionment, instant loss of power and control 
of our circumstances. What happened to your five-year plan in 2020? But we forget that we're just human, right? To be human is to be limited, to be finite, and to be a Christ follower is to be dependent, mindful that we live our lives at the mercy of a sovereign Lord, sovereign Lord of the world. It's true. God does give us responsibility and resources that we're to steward, but He does not give us control. This is a difficult lesson to learn, but many a sleepless night and much despair in the midst of disappointment could be avoided if we could just take James's words to heart. How can we avoid this? Here's how. An invitation to a better plan. James adds a key truth to their understanding whilst planning. It's an expression of dependence on God that has become known as the Jacobian condition. The Jacobian condition, it's Latin for under the reservation of James, Jacobia. It's not just that their lives are fleeting. It's that they need to understand that they're not in control. God is. Notice in verse 13, he tells us what we're not supposed to say. Then in verse 15, he tells us that what we are supposed to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. What James is saying is that you should take any situation you're in, any decision that you must make, any plan, any emotional state that you're in, and in the midst of that, remind yourself that the only reason you are standing there breathing is by the grace of God. Do you realize how different your attitude to life would be if you could actually just believe that? James says, if the Lord wills, then we will live, and then we'll do this or that. Our very lives are contingent on Him. The difference is, you need to say, in Latin, it's Deo Valente, we will live and do this or that. Deo Valente, what does it mean? It means God willing. God willing. In the, the, the world in which we lived, it's not a closed system, but open to the sovereign Lord, open to the working of the sovereign Lord, who made it. Our visible world is not all, our visible material world is not all there is. As Christ follows, we're to be those who plan and desire as though God is in control. Well, because He is. Paul lived this way in Acts 18 when Paul says to the Ephesian believers, he says, when they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. Or in Romans 1, For God is my witness, who I am served with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow, by God's will, I may, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. This, this Jacobian condition, it's not some abracadabra phrase. It's not some magic spell that we tag on to the end of all our plans. I don't expect my mate Gareth to say to me, hey, Derek, on Tuesday at 6 a.m., shall we go for a run, Deo Volante? <laughs> no, John Wesley, in, teaching to, in his teachings to younger preachers, he, he goes out of his way to say, avoid pious jargon. There are people who feel, though, this is what James is saying, is that we must constantly utter things like, if the Lord really wills, the Lord is really leading me, and the Lord is telling me this. 
And so you must add this Christianese, pious jargon onto everything. Instead of saying, this is what I think, you, you say, the Lord has shown me. Instead of saying, this is what I want to do, you say, we should do this, God willing, and so on. And it's not only irritating to non-Christians to hear somebody talk like that. <laughs> James is against arrogance. And when you talk like that, you put yourself above contradiction, right? I even in a, another church in the area, I won't mention its name, uh, a guy in that church walked up to a girl and he said to her, God's told me that we must get married. And she was like, mm, <laughs> really? Uh, you see, when you say stuff like that, what are you doing? You're making it impossible for somebody to say, well, I don't think that's a good idea. Well, who am I to question if you say the Lord has said? It's manipulative and it's arrogant, and James is very much against that. Nor is Deo Valente a fatalistic cop-out that excuses us from taking responsibility for our actions. But God told me to do it, or it was God's will that I did that. That's the opposite of what James is saying. James is saying the whole problem is you're putting yourself in the place of God. And by making yourself hard to contradict, you're refusing to take responsibility for your opinion. Can't you see that? Oh, I'm telling you exactly what God said. But rather, James is saying there's a way of desiring and planning towards a future in such a way that we seek God's will and we want to implement His will in our planning. He's saying, look at your life, every part of your life, and say, this is all grace. The fact that I'm alive, the fact that I breathe, the fact that my heart is beating, if God gave me what I deserved, I'd be wiped out. It's only by grace that I'm living. If God wills, I will live. And only by His will. And here's what's so brilliant and what's so mind-blowing about this and why I just love this passage when things go badly and you start to worry and the anxiety starts to build, you can just say, it's all by grace. It's all, even the success, all the great success, when you're in a moment of extreme success, it's all by grace. Nothing but grace. God is in charge of this. You don't hold yourself up. So what are you worried about? Who needed to hear that this morning? You don't hold yourself up. Amen. It's the knowledge that God has a plan and He is in control and that we get to live our lives doing His will and we plan to do just that as best we can. It makes sense that we should evaluate our plans, even our plans for profit, and ask ourselves, is this in accordance with this, what the Scriptures teach about the will of God? Because you see, planning without God is arrogant, and it leads to greater sin. I said earlier, there's more to the sin of omission. Verse 17, if anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it's sin for them. What he's saying here is that there is a sin that is so pervasive because to commit it is not to exert any energy at all. You commit it simply by going with the flow. You commit it by not doing anything, by not exerting yourself. If you do what comes naturally, you're sinning in this regard. What is the sin? It's simply to go about your life, make your plans, operate as normal, and to forget God. That's what he's saying. 
He says one of the worst sins, one of the most serious sins, one of the most fundamental sins is simply just to forget God. Not to break this or that commandment, but simply to go about your life as if God doesn't matter. One of the most pathological and fundamental sins there is, one of the most terrible and dangerous sins there is, to simply look at the future, enter a relationship, start and run a business, make a decision, go about your lives, and make goals without a reference for God. In other words, here's the sin. Living or planning or working or operating without continual, relentless reference to God intellectually and emotionally. To fail in any regard to connect your thinking, feeling, and what you're doing right now. To connect that vitally with who God is and what he's done for you. James says to say tomorrow I'm going to do such and such. It's a very wicked thing. You have to say, God willing, I'll do that. James is saying, to plan anything or do anything without a thought for God's will, it's a terrible thing. It's terrible to God, and it's terrible for you. It's terrible to you. It's destructive in your relationship with God. It offends Him, it hurts Him, and it'll destroy you. In what way? In what way is it so bad for God? In what way is it so bad for you? And how can we avoid this? How can we avoid this sin? Firstly, what's so bad about it? Well, how would you like to be forgotten? There's uh, nothing worse you can do. There's a writer who once said, sorry, cold weather makes my nose run. There's a writer who once said, there's something far worse than having a terrible review of your book. There's, uh, than having people attacking you and saying horrible things about your book, having bad reviews. There's something much, much worse, and that's to have no reviews at all. He says, that's much, much worse. There's something much worse than being criticized. It's to be ignored. Because if you're ignored, you're treated as a nobody, a nothing. You're treated as a vapor. You're treated as transitory and temporary. It's an awful thing to be forgotten, not invited to the party, especially if it's by someone you love or somebody who owes you. There's nothing worse. In the Old Testament, David writes in Psalm 9, he writes, well, the Old Testament many, many times, one of... One of the great sins that God denounces in the Old Testament is simply to forget him. Just carelessly going through life, forgetting him, only thinking about him on Sundays. In Psalm 9, David writes this psalm and he talks about the wicked who forget God. And he writes his song. And then at the end of his song, he says, But those who remember God will not be forgotten by God. Those who remember God will not. God says something very fair. He says, If you forget me, I'll forget you. What does it mean to be remembered, though? It means to be recognized, to be treated as someone of substance, to be focused on. It means to be ascribed glory. What is glory? Glory is weight and value. And the opposite of glory is to be forgotten. God says, if you forget me, I'll forget you. But if you remember me, I'll remember you. If you focus on me and acknowledge me, I will focus on you and I will acknowledge you. You don't forget what's important, do you? Is God not important to you? You know what it's like to be treated like a vapor? It's, just, it's not that James is just saying to forget God is evil. Of course it's evil. It hurts. It's out of touch with reality. But it's also, look at the passage, it's boastful, arrogant, and proud. When you forget God by definition, you assume God's place. That's why it's so bad. How do you make a plan without reference to God? How when you don't know 
You don't know what the future holds, but God holds the future in his hands. We are finite. He's infinite. The band can come up. I'm going to start landing now. We've got these omni words for God, right? We've got omniscience, which means omniscience. God is all-knowing and everything at once he must know because if he didn't know, it wouldn't exist. We've got omnipotence, which means there's no limit to what he does. He's all-powerful. If he wants something, it happens. And then there's the omnipresence, which means he's everywhere all at once. No limitations. He is self-existent and undependent, a no-conditioned sovereign being. But if we forget God, you see, the heart is deceitful above all things. The heart is deceitful above all things. We don't really care about that righteousness, but we'd really like that omniscience. We don't really care about holiness, but we'd love that omnipotence. When you forget God, you assume these attributes, and suddenly you're back in the Garden of Eden eating apples with Adam and Eve. You're acting as if you have the right to call the shots in your life, and as if you have enough knowledge to know what's going on. To forget God is to assume the place of God. What's so bad about that? Think about it. You start to believe that God doesn't need to be involved because maybe God won't get it right. So you're going to go it alone. Then guess what you're saying? You're saying he's no longer God. But what if you say, what if you say, hey, I'd like to go to UCT and study this or that, or I'd like to have this relationship, I'd like to marry this person, I'd like to move to this place, I'm hoping for these things, I'm praying for them, I've set a goal, but I don't know, because I don't know everything, I'm not omniscient, I'm not God, I'm like a child, I don't know what's best for me, I don't always know what's right or wrong, I don't know you say that, you're remembering God. All by grace, you're not in control. You do not hold yourself up. Don't you see God holds you up? He holds us up. Let that take the pressure off your shoulders right now. God holds you up. How can God be so good? How can God be so good? As, mentioned in, as I mentioned in Psalm 9, it says, if we forget Him, He will forget us. But we have forgotten Him, haven't we? Be honest. So we should be forgotten. James, where's the hope? James says, guys, just remember, it's all God's grace. It's all Jesus. It's all Jesus. Here's how. There's nothing worse than being forgotten. If you know the musical Jesus Christ Superstar, Tim Rice and Andrew Lloyd Webber, they, they, they penned these songs and they penned the words for Jesus as he's, as he's on the cross just near the end of the climax of, of, the, of the play. He's on the cross and he says the last lines, but this is the way they've worded it. He's up there on the cross and he says, my God, my God, why have you forgotten me? Because that's what happened, isn't it? He was forgotten. He was forgotten by the only person that really mattered to him and it was hell. But don't you see? Because Jesus was forgotten. Because Jesus was forgotten for us. He got the forgetting. He got the forgottenness that we deserve, that we should have had. That's why God can say in the book of Isaiah, I won't forget you. I've written your name on the palm of my hand. 
how can God not forget us? How can He be a God of grace? Well, because He forgot His Son so He could remember us. And because He always remembers us, we can always remember Him constantly and live a life of triumph and fullness today, tomorrow, and for all our future plans. By the grace of God go I. Amen. True wisdom plans faithfully without the illusion of control. Christians plan their lives in such a way as to reflect their faith in a sovereign God, a sovereign Lord, and desire to live for His kingdom. Let's think through both our short-term and our long-term plans. The challenge isn't to create a culture without any planning, but rather God wants, to, wants us to plan with a sense of His sovereignty and His will, to make decisions with the sense of the Lord's, Lord's will and working in our world, to never forget Him, not in the mundane or the massive decisions and plans and choices that we make. Amen. Let's pray. Our oh, Father God, we thank you for the cross. We so deserve to be forgotten as we have so forgotten you. Help us, Lord, every day and every choice and every moment to recognize just the grace you've poured out over us. Every time we feel our lungs breathing to realize it's all by your grace. You are so good to us. And Lord, help us to remember you in every decision and every plan that we make to recognize you as Lord of our lives, as a sovereign Lord. We love you, Father. Amen.